Hey everybody, welcome to RUF. Uh, my name is Thomas, campus minister here. Uh, I'm gonna kind of try and create some space here because I'm definitely gonna be pacing a lot today. Just kidding, I'm not. Um, but every week we say at RUF, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And what that means is that the Christian life is all about God's grace or God's kindness. Um, so we don't simply just become Christians by trusting in Jesus. Uh, we actually grow and cr- grow as Christians by trusting in Jesus. And that's what RUF is all about. And every semester in RUF, uh, we go through a sermon series. Uh, and this semester, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is Jesus' kind of most popular teaching uh, from Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And the Sermon on the Mount is essentially Jesus um, describing what it looks like to follow him in a fallen world. Uh, it's Jesus giving us a vision for what the good life is. And so we've been going kind of through uh, the sermon thus far. Um, this is our sixth week, actually. Um, but two weeks ago, we looked at Matthew five seventeen, where Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And last week and this week and then next week, we're going to be looking at Jesus kind of giving us examples of what that means. Uh, so last week we talked about anger um, and how Jesus didn't come to abolish the law concerning anger, but he came to fulfill it. He came to deepen it. And this week we're going to be looking at intimacy. Intimacy. So maybe even as Joel was reading this passage, um, you kind of maybe are starting to think, like, what is this guy going to say? about this. (laughs) Uh, So I just want to name on the front end that this is a sensitive issue. Uh, And Jesus speaks very candidly in this passage about sex, about lust, and about desire. And these are all topics that uh, can be very sensitive. I think it's something that's easy to talk about maybe in general terms, but when you start talking specifically, and when you start talking about yourself as it relates to these things, uh, things can get really scary. And I think it's also important to acknowledge that we all come to this passage uh, with a sexual history. We all come to this passage uh, with things that we carry shame for. Some of us carry shame for our sexual history, whether that's shame about porn addiction or what you've done with others in the past. Uh, Some of us might be here and think that the Bible's teaching on sex is a bummer at best and just outright like immoral and harmful at worst. And others of us here, I know, have been sinned against sexually. So all of these people are here in this room. All of us struggle sexually. All of us have been either sinned against or carry shame. Uh, Some of us have been thrown into the world of human sexuality against our will. So I just want to name that on the front end. This is a very sensitive and difficult topic to talk about. So regardless of where we find ourselves tonight, I just want to acknowledge Jesus's words might be a little bit difficult for us, but I think if we stick with him, he's got good news for us. So as we look at this passage tonight, we're going to consider three points. So first, what we're made for. Second, what gets in the way. And third, what to do about it. So what we're made for, what gets in the way, and what to do about it. I'm going to pause now and pray for us, and then we can get started. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you um, for your word and how you speak to things uh, that are relevant to what we're going through. Um, Lord, as we're turning to um, talking about intimacy, I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would help us to see you, 
Uh, Lord, I know that this is a topic that can bring up uh, fear and shame um, for a lot of us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would shine your light, um, that you would protect us from uh, the attacks of the evil one who wants to make us feel alone. Um, So, Lord, help us to see you clearly and in so doing to see ourselves clearly. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first off in this passage, Jesus shows us what we were made for, what we were made for. Uh, So in verse 27, Jesus begins the same way he did last week by quoting a commandment from the Old Testament. Uh, Last week, it was the sixth commandment. This week, it is the seventh commandment. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, And just to kind of remind you what Jesus is doing here, um, last week, this week, and for the next couple of weeks, what we're looking at, Jesus is going to start everything with this kind of formula. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Uh, And Jesus is combating teaching of folks who wanted to kind of take the law of God and turn it into a checklist. And so Jesus is kind of accounting for what people have heard said, and then he's redirecting, he's deepening the law. And here, as I said, he's talking about the seventh commandment, uh, the prohibition against adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Uh, So what is adultery? Uh, That can be kind of like an old word that we don't use as often. Uh, At its most basic level, adultery is a violation of the covenant of marriage, a violation of the covenant of marriage, Uh, any sexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage. And maybe you're here tonight and you're thinking, uh, why is it that the Bible seems so preoccupied with this? Uh, Maybe you were raised in the church and you grew up hearing a lot about sexuality, a lot about things like dating. Uh, Why is it the Bible spends so much time talking about sex? And I think to understand that, you have to go back to the beginning of the Bible itself. So in Genesis 1, uh, God makes humanity in his image. It says he created them male and female. And then in Genesis 2, we see kind of a, a zoom in on the first human, act, human interaction ever to happen. So Adam has been created. God has given him, given him meaningful work. And then he set, God says to Adam that it's not good for you to be alone. And so he creates woman. And then the first human interaction in all of history goes like this. Adam says to Eve, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And in English, that sounds cool, but even in the original language, it's, it's even cooler. It's, it's a poem. It's beautiful. It's full of wordplay. So the first thing that was ever said to another human being uh, was a song, was a poem. And even more than that, the first human interaction was a naked man singing to his naked wife in the presence of God. How does that make you feel? <laughs> If you're anything like me, it makes me feel a little uncomfortable, right? Like, it's like, ugh. <laughs> but this is a picture, actually, not of something that's supposed to make us feel weird, but it's a picture of what we were created for. This is a picture of perfect intimacy. You see, this feels weird for us because we can't imagine that not being a bad thing, right? We can't imagine that not being exposing. But in the Bible, this is what we're known for. We're known to be full, we're made for being fully known and fully loved before God and one another. So this picture here that we're given, uh, it tells us kind of why God cares so much about sex and marriage. See, he cares so much about sex and marriage because they are a picture of what we're made for, because we're made for intimacy. We're made to be fully known and fully loved. We're made to live in perfect relationship. 
Uh, so maybe you're here and you're saying, uh, well, so we're made for uh, being fully known and fully loved. So are, is what you're saying that we're made for sex? That sounds awesome. Uh, that's not exactly what I'm saying. Um, so one of my favorite movie scenes of all time comes from the movie Zoolander. Yes, I've referenced Zoolander before this semester. <laughs> um, but so the bad guy, his name is Mugatu, played by Will Ferrell. And at this point in the movie, uh, he is trying to convince Derek Zoolander, played by Ben Stiller, uh, to become one of his models. And he picks Zoolander because he's so dim-witted. And he needs somebody that's kind of a blank slate because he's going to hypnotize him into killing the prime minister of Malaysia. That's actually the, the movie plot. Uh, and so, but first, before he can do that, he has to convince Derek to model for him. And Derek is very suspicious of Mugatu. And so what Mugatu does is he has someone draw up this model for him because he knows that Derek Zoolander's dream is to open this like philanthropic center called the Derek Zoolander Center for kids who can't read good and want to learn how to do other stuff too. That's his dream. And so Mugatu has an architect friend draw up this model and like kind of build it, this three-dimensional model, and he's going to present this to Derek to try to convince him to model for him. And so in the scene, Derek kind of comes up and, and Mugatu shows him the center. He's like, if you model for me, I will build this for you. And Derek's just quiet and he kind of looks at it and takes it in. And then he looks back at Mugatu and he says, what is this, a center for ants? It needs to be at least three times this size. <laughs> And then Mugatu says, you know what? He's right. It does need to be at least three times this size. Here's the thing, okay? Just like Zoolander, we can mistake the model or the picture for the real thing. See, the Bible has a lot of good things to say about sex and sexuality precisely because sex is meant to point us back to Eden. It's supposed to point us to a picture of what we were made for, being fully known and fully loved by God. And so what does this mean for us practically? I, I think it means that all of our desire, sexual desire included, is really about God. We're longing for God. Uh, there's a quote I, I came across um, as I was looking, you know, just looking around for stuff to, to say tonight. Um, but it says, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. You see, our, our sexual desire, all of our desire, is about being fully known and fully loved by God. So that's what we were made for. We were made to be fully known and fully loved. But there are things that get in the way. And Jesus kind of starts to address this in verse 28. Um, if you would look with me there. He says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so just to reiterate, what Jesus is doing here is combating kind of external understandings of the law and trying to point inward to the heart. He's trying to say that there's more to the law than simple external actions. And what Jesus does here, he asks people to kind of imagine a situation of a man looking at a woman with lustful intent. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. One, primarily, is that Jesus's audience was likely mostly male. Um, but I don't think what Je Jesus wasn't trying to say that this is only a male problem. I think actually, I mean, if you look at statistics, there aren't really statistics on lust, but there are statistics on things like pornography. And increasingly, it's not just a male problem. Increasingly, women and men struggle with this. So I think Jesus' words here are for all of us, even though they're written in this particular way. So how does Jesus kind of combat this external understanding of the law? Uh, he talks about the heart. He says that it is possible to commit adultery with someone in your heart. 
And what he's doing there is drawing on an Old Testament idea that the heart is the center of the human person. It's the thing from which everything that we do comes. And so Jesus is saying that there is a way that you can commit adultery in the center of who you are. And he says that the way this happens is through looking at someone with lustful intent. And the word there translated lustful intent, it means something like over-desire. It's not just desire. It's looking at someone with the purpose in mind of lusting after them. It's not simply looking at them. Actually, this word is elsewhere translated as greed. It's greed. See, what, what I think Jesus is not doing here, Jesus is not condemning attraction. He's not saying that it's wrong to feel attraction. In fact, if you want to go back to Genesis 2, I think the Bible's pretty okay with attraction. Or maybe look at Song of Songs. Attraction is not a bad thing. But what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that we can commit adultery in the center of our being without committing adultery physically. Or to say it another way, what we do with our imaginations matters. What we do with our imaginations matters. And this is a universal struggle that that Jesus felt the need to speak to even in his day. But it would be hard to really even reflect on Jesus's words here uh, without thinking about our own culture and thinking about, in particular, the prominence of porn. Uh, It's easier than ever to access. Why is it that Jesus is saying that, that sexual sin doesn't just it isn't just a physical act, it actually goes deeper. Like, is, is it really that harmful? If I'm made for this, if I'm made for intimacy, why is it so wrong to look for things that are like intimacy to fill me up? Like, why not try and find it whenever I can? Why does it matter what I do in my mind or what I look up on the internet? It doesn't harm anyone, right? I want to say this is a common objection that folks have. Uh, This is a common thought that people have, and I just want to kind of suggest two reasons why that doesn't really hold up. Two reasons, specifically related to porn. Uh, Two reasons. The first is that porn hijacks your mind, and second, that porn diminishes God's image. So it hijacks your mind, and it diminishes God's image. So first, it hijacks your mind. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone Um, Yes, I think it's a Sorcerer's Stone. I really hope I'm not referencing the wrong one. But there's a scene where they're in the woods and they see this kind of like phantom creature attacking a unicorn. uh, And it's like sucking the unicorn blood out. And it's all silvery and kind of gross. And it's this grotesque scene because it's this beautiful creature being killed. And then Harry is kind of confused as to why anyone would do that. And it turns out that it's Lord Voldemort who is not yet in full bodily form. And the reason he's sucking the the unicorn blood is because it gives you kind of like an unnatural, prolonged life. Uh, But the thing about it is that it's not a real life that it gives you. It actually gives you a cursed life, and it requires more and more and more for you to feel alive. I think porn functions the same way. It functions like a drug. Uh, C.S. Lewis says in the screw tape letters of kind of sexual desire, Um, and lust. He says, it's an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. And that's how it works. And this is not just uh, C.S. Lewis and and Harry Potter saying this. This is actually demonstrated in neuroscience. Uh, the The more that you indulge, the more that you will want to indulge. That's how it works. It hijacks your mind. But porn doesn't only hijack your mind, it also diminishes God's image. Because you might be thinking, if it hijacks your mind, well, well, that's just me. 
That's my choice. But it doesn't actually stop there. Uh, The issue is what we do in private, it never really stays private. You see, we can't advocate things like consent in public while binging on porn in private. You see, porn degrades both men and women. And the majority of it, even statistically speaking, rehearses abusive sexual interactions. You see, we can't drink deeply from this stream privately and expect it to not spill over into how we live publicly. We can't do it. I think this is where things like, I mean, this is where rape culture begins. Stuff like this is why women on this campus are afraid to walk places at night. This is where it begins. And there's an allure of this sort of false intimacy. So we were made for intimacy, and yet there's readily accessible false intimacy all over the place. So the natural question is, what can be done about it? What can be done about it? So fortunately, Jesus tells us something to do about it. Uh, And in telling us what to do about it, Jesus makes use of some pretty shocking imagery in verses 29 and 30. Uh, He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And then in verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And in both instances, he says that it's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Uh, what is Jesus getting at here? Why is he using this, like, such intense language? I just want to be clear about two things that I think Jesus is not doing here. Um, Jesus is not telling us to literally cut off our hand. Jesus is not telling us to literally pluck out our eye, okay? If he was doing that, then all of his disciples would have been walking around looking like pirates, and none of them were. That's not what he's advocating. But I also want to be very, very clear that Jesus is also not telling us that if you struggle in this area, if you are a sexual sinner, which is all of us, that you go to hell. See, if this is the case, then heaven would be empty, That's not what he's saying. So what is Jesus saying? I think here in these two verses, Jesus is giving us a little bit of a a charge. He's giving us a charge. He's calling us to own our sin and to remember who we are. To own our sin and to remember who we are. First, Jesus tells us to own our sin. So in using this kind of shocking imagery here at the end, uh, Jesus is showing us just how seriously we should take his words. He says that we should pluck our eye out, cut off our hand. And I think this, I mean, this is kind of an obvious point, but it needs to be pointed out. Uh, Jesus doesn't call us to shame people for what they're wearing. He calls us to pluck our own eye out. Jesus doesn't call us to put our own sexual sin and struggle on other people and blame it on what they're doing or what they're wearing. He tells us to tear our own eyes out. He tears us to cut our own hands off. And the unfortunate reality is that this text and other texts like it have been used to put the sexual struggles of men onto women. And that is not okay. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is calling us to own our sin. The problem is not what others wear or do. It is our own eyes and our own hands. And I think also specifically with uh, with connecting this sort of action with hell, Uh, Jesus is telling us that leaving our sin unchecked is going to be worse than death and hell itself. Jesus is inviting us to call our sin what it is and to resist it. What might this look like practically? That sounds really big. How do you shrink that down? I think practically it just looks like knowing yourself. 
and knowing what your struggles are. Knowing uh, maybe there are certain shows that you just don't need to watch. Uh, Maybe you need to get uh, Covenant Eyes or something like that on your computer. Maybe you need to talk to a trusted friend or a pastor about your struggles. If that's you, then I would love to talk to you about that. Uh, This is a more common struggle than you think. And in fact, uh, anyone your age, it's almost impossible for you to not come into contact with this. It's common. So Jesus calls us to own our sin, but then second, he calls us to remember who we are. And I think in calling us to take ownership of our sin, Jesus is implicitly reminding us of who we are. Uh, Much of our sexual struggle is rooted in in false images of the self. Uh, Maybe you've heard the idea that like men are Neanderthals that just like can't resist any sort of sexual advance. And then the opposite image is that women are objects. You see, Jesus challenges these self-images by telling us that we actually have the ability to do something about it. Jesus tells us here, he, he bestows the dignity of being able to do something about it. We don't have to make peace with sin in our lives. We can actually resist. We can pluck our eye out. We can cut our hand off. We can actually do something. We don't have to be a victim of this sin in our life. So Jesus tells us to own our sin and remember who we are. Um, but if you're listening, I, I mean, that's, that's hard to do. We don't exactly live in a culture that encourages uh, this sort of thing. It doesn't encourage us to embody Jesus' teaching on sexuality here. Uh, how can we continually do this? How can we remember who we are? How can we own our sin? And I think before we can ever do this, uh, before we can ever be the sort of people Jesus describes, we need to know who Jesus is for us. You see, Jesus existed with God in perfect intimacy. He was fully known and fully loved. Every moment was complete celebration and joy. And then the fall into sin happened, and Jesus himself enters into creation in order to restore us to the intimacy that we were created for. You see, Jesus knew perfect intimacy with God for all of eternity. He was fully known and fully loved, and yet he enters into our world of false intimacy to restore us to what we're created for. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be hoarded, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And then Jesus died in our place, and he doesn't simply die for the ways that we pursue false intimacy. He is also raised to new life. And see, when we place our faith in Jesus, we're not only united to him, with him in his death, we're not only dead to our sin, we're also alive We are alive people who do alive people things. You see, in Christ, we are new creations. We are new creations who are not defined by our relationship to sin. We don't have to wallow in shame when we mess up. We can grieve the presence of sin in our lives and in others because sin doesn't name us. We're not known by our sin. But also in Jesus, we're restored to the intimacy that we're created for. We can more and more say no to the counterfeits that we see because in Jesus we have the real intimacy that we were created for. I just want to close like I do every week and I just want to say if you're struggling here tonight, look at Jesus. Look to Jesus and he will enable you more and more to be the sort of of person that he describes in this passage tonight. Amen. Amen.